0: But um, she, in constructing the nest, of course, builds it with heavy branches and, uh, and, and sticks. And that's the, the, the superstructure, I guess, of the nest. But then, then, before she lays her eggs, she begins to pluck the, the softer feathers from her body and, and line that nest with these soft, fluffy, downy feathers so that the babies, when they're born... You know come out of that egg it's a nice comfortable cozy setting well as they grow older and older and older and and getting ready and should be leaving the nest then she starts reversing the process Uh, each day she'll take a few of those fluffy downy feathers out of the nest and she'll continue that process until the nest just becomes downright uncomfortable and the babies are now thinking we want to get out of here and so when they begin to start, you know, edging on out, edging on up to the edge of the, the, the uh, nest, then like any loving mother would do, she pushes them over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, as they tumble and flatter and flap and all of that, then she'll swoop down and gather them up you know, and then put them back on the perch. And then this process continues until eventually they discover, hey, I can fly. And I understand that you parents probably, some of you parents that have maybe older children, you're taking note, okay? Hmm, maybe I should turn the electricity off in my son's room or my daughter's room or maybe disconnect the cable. or No, but that's not not the message. That's not what I'm trying to say. But you know, God uses uncomfortable circumstances to develop His people. That's a part of God's plan. You know, It's a a sad thing that sometimes churches and pastors communicate a very false image of Christianity. As if that once you become a Christian and join the church, everything comes up roses. It's it's just smooth sailing from here on out. Now anybody here today that believes that, stand on your head. Because you know good and well that's not the case. It wasn't the case at the very beginning of the church. It is not the case in the church today. God allows some hardships to come our way sometimes to nudge us forward, to follow Him, to trust Him. Not not cuddle up and get too cozy, but to get out there and be the people of God. And you know, yesterday in our evangelism seminar, we were just discussing that and praying about you know how God would use us to go outside of the church walls and discover the people that God has out there that he wants us to impact through relationships and however long that might take be able to share Christ with them that's what it's really all about well taking your attention back to Acts chapter 6 chapter 6 and and chapter 7 and chapter 8 represent a transitional point In the book of Acts. Because what we find happening is through some pretty uncomfortable circumstances, God is beginning to nudge the church forward in its great commission. God didn't say, Christ didn't say to his disciples, Now you guys build yourself a big facility here in Jerusalem. And, and then you all kind of establish a, a religious country club and, 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 and just have a good time here. Have some great teaching and have some great programs. And, and, and if anybody wants to come, let them come. And just be comfortable. Enjoy the ride. <laughs> Jesus says, go therefore making disciples of all the nations. And he says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth what you're going to begin to see beginning in this chapter and the subsequent chapters is God is beginning to move the church out into the world, into their Judea and Samaria, and eventually to the remotest parts of the earth. And you know what? God is still doing that today. If we're faithful as a congregation, we will be addressing our Jerusalem, but at the same time, we'll have our eye on our Judea and Samaria and eventually other parts of the world to share Christ with those who need to know Him as Lord and Savior. And so what you see happening here in, in Acts chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 1. In verse 1, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenist, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And, and so, uh, first of all, I think as we begin to see there's trouble brewing, let me just maybe inform you and give you insight. There's a sinister force behind all of this too. Understand that the adversary, Satan, has an agenda of his own. Just as God's agenda is to grow the church and to motivate the church and mobilize the church, I can assure you that Satan, our adversary, the adversary of the church, has also determined that he'll do everything he can to destroy the church, to undermine the church. And so we see this beginning to happen. But some things are happening in the in the church that I think it's noteworthy for us to take a look at the church is growing membership the church is growing exponentially we know that at Pentecost there were 5000 men that were you know brought into the faith and and then uh, commentaries say at this point in the life of the church there's as many as 20 to 25,000 people added to the church one of the reasons that's happening is because Following Pentecost, there's an, an amazing spiritual purity that exists in the church because the Holy Spirit is filling Christians and they're fresh in their walk with God and, and, and walk with Christ. And we saw through the incident with Ananias and Sapphira that God is purging where sin raises its ugly head within the church. God was swift to purge. So through that empowering and the purging process you might say that this is the purest state that the church has been and ever will be till jesus comes again and so because of that there are many people that are drawn to the to the church the holy spirit is adding to them in this time of purity and power and and post-pentecost episode you may ask can we duplicate such exponential growth today? wow, wouldn't that be great if we could just come up with some kind of a program, and engineer, some kind of technique where we could go from being maybe 100 to, to 1,200. No, or or 120,000. Wouldn't that be... Can, can we do such a thing today? No. Could God do something like this today? Sure. If it's His plan. What was happening in the life of the church was God's plan being worked out. And, and so there's great growth going on. There's, this is encouraging to the church. But also understand that with great growth and the multiplication of membership comes great challenges to the leadership. Imagine these apostles as they're trying to manage twenty to 25,000 uh, new believers. And, and, and it administered to the needs of them. Now, remember, these are the same guys that walked with Jesus. And these are the same guys that, that heard him preach and teach. These are the same men who had a difficult time coming up with how they're going to feed 5,000 one meal. And now they got 20 to 25,000 every day. Three square meals a day, taking care of all the needs that are going on. Listen, that would almost be a managerial nightmare. So with all the great growth, there comes problems as well. And as we read in the text here, there's also potential for division. This is is Satan's specialty. He loves to divide and conquer. He loves to divide couples, married couples. He loves to divide families, put, put children against parents. He loves to, to divide families, brothers against sisters. And oh, he loves to divide churches. Wherever he can create division, he realizes that's the first step towards destruction. And so, what you see here is Satan working because he understands how relation, human relationships work. And so, in the church, what you find in this time period, there, there are two basic groups. The predominant group are those who we would, we would call Hebrew. Christians. Those who were from the area of Jerusalem and, and, and Judea in that area, most of them speaking uh, Hebrew or the tongue of, the, uh, of that area would be Aramaic. Most of them were speaking Aramaic. But there was another group of Jews who were also became Christians who were called the Hellenists. And these are Greek speaking Jews. You see, when the nation of Israel was conquered, Jews were dispersed through the diaspora they were dispersed all over the civilized world into all kinds of nations. so you had Jews that were living in, in Rome and, 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 and Asia Minor you had Jews who were in northern Africa and so and, and because Greek was the predominant language of the outside world outside of Judea and Jerusalem, many of them spoke Greek now all of a sudden you 've got Hebrew Jews, and you got Hellenist Jews who are thrown together into this great big family of twenty to 25,000. And what you see described there by Luke in verse 1 in chapter 6 is there, appear, there appears to be some partiality going on. Because you see, the Greek-speaking Christians now are coming to the leaders, the apostles, and said, hey, time out. Our widows are not being administered to the way that the, Jew, the Hebrew widows are. In other words, they're being slighted. And, and so this is creating some dissension, and this is creating some tension in the body of Christ. And so what we're going to see here is how do they deal with this. And I think it's important. The church today is, diverse, is a diverse body. I'm serving on the, in fact, I'm chairing the Committee on Nominations for the Baptist State Convention. And as we are looking to fill boards of directors and committees for the convention all across the state, one of the things that we're being challenged to do is to to reflect the diversity of our convention. Because even just with North Carolina Baptists, it's not Caucasians anymore. It's not... Indians anymore. We've got all kinds of ethnic groups from all over the world who are making up these new church plants and and other congregations and so as, as a Baptist body we've got to celebrate that diversity but sometimes when you have diversity it can create some challenges and that's what's happening here in the midst of the early church and so the apostles are seeking to address this. I think it's important when I look at that I couldn't help but think about something that Paul said later and in fact, Pastor Tim, preaching through Galatians, touched on this. But it's a, good, it's a good biblical principle for us to remember when we encounter people who are different from us. And ladies and gentlemen, you go around the Walberg community, South Forsyth County, in North Davidson area, you'll find out that our, our, our hometown is, is looking less and less like Mayberry. In fact, you'll find ethnic groups in, in all different pockets around. And so as we reach out, we need to understand. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In the body of Christ, there is no distinction as far as worth. Nobody is better than anybody else. I don't care how educated you are, how, how uh, economically blessed you are, or how uh, sophisticated you are socially. The fact is, in the church, Paul says, we're all the same. We're all the, of the same value in the eyes of God. Now, does that diminish our differences? No. No. We can appreciate our different backgrounds. We can appreciate our different talents. We can appreciate the different gifts that God, oh, listen, celebrate the diversity, but be aware just as the church was having to deal with here. Sometimes, sometimes those differences, if we allow Satan to get a hold of it, they can create division in the church and you have to deal with it. You know, one of the best principles I think he can apply. If we practice Philippians 2, 2 and 3, where Paul says, don't do anything through selfishness or empty conceit. But he says, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. You know what, if we did that brothers and sisters, we would eliminate the vast majority of the problems that plague churches and create division and dissension in the body of Christ today. If you and I would commit ourselves to not being so preoccupied and obsessed with what I want. What's going to make me happy? What's going to make me comfortable? What's going to suit my needs? And instead, look at a brother or sister and say, I wonder how I can help them to be pleased. I wonder how I can help meet their needs. You see, that's what's got to happen for the body of Christ to really experience the unity that Christ intended for us. But but let's move on now. So here's the problem. There's a there's a difference in the way that the Hebrew, the Hebrew Jew, uh, Jewish widows are being ministered to and or... Christian widows and the Hellenist widows are being slighted. And so I want you to see how it's being dealt with. Then the twelve, speaking of the apostles, in verse 2, summoned the multitude of the disciples, that means the whole body, they had a, a membership meeting, got the whole church together, and said, it, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, to quote Mayberry's famous beloved philosopher, Deputy Bernard P. Fife Barney, when things like this, when problems began to develop in the church, You do what? Nip it. You nip it in the bud. You don't just sit back and procrastinate and try to rationalize and and say, well, we'll deal with this in the next member meeting or we've got other things. No, when things like this arise, you deal with it. That's what the apostles did. They said, hold it, time out, time out. We've got some dissension in the body. Everybody get together. Everybody get together. And immediately they recognize the need. And that was partiality being practiced within the fellowship. And it was threatening the fellowship of the church. And so, you'll notice, they didn't chastise the Hellenists who came and made this complaint, the Hellenist Christians. They didn't say, what's the matter, you crybabies? Don't you see we're busy? No, no, no. They didn't chastise them. They didn't put them on the defensive. They heard them. They listened to them. And they gave them a sympathetic ear. Because they understand that favoritism undermines the unity of the church. Whether that favoritism was being practiced intentionally or unintentionally, it doesn't matter. The fact is, if it creates the feeling of people being slighted, then that gives Satan a toehole in the body of Christ. That's why I say one of the best things that we can do as a congregation is everybody take responsibility for the church. Don't sit back and say, well, that's what the preacher gets paid to do. We'll let him deal with the problem. We'll let him keep the peace in the congregation. No, no, you take responsibility. You take ownership. This is your family. We belong to each other. And if you know something is, is, is beginning to stir that could be potentially hurtful to the congregation, don't sit back. Or, 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 or whisper to somebody else in a gossiping way and, and just sit back to, I, I'm going to wait and see how the preacher handles this. Now you take a, take an active role in, in being able to address it and bring it to the attention of the leadership and get involved. And that's exactly what the apostles are doing here in Acts chapter 6 as we look in verse 2. The apostles, as they assemble them together, and you'll notice in verse 3, they give the church an assignment. They engage the church in the problem. You notice the, the, the apostles didn't say, now we're, we're the leaders, y'all just go over there and wait, we'll come up with something. <laughs> I love the way that they, they brought the church into the process and, and helped to make them a part of the solution. How did they do that? They said, well, listen, we've got priorities, and we'll talk about this in just a second, But he says, you, brethren, you seek out among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The church was given and delegated the responsibility of nominating. Nominating these seven men who would take over the leadership and the responsibility of making sure that everybody was equally adequately served at the table. And by the way, when it talks about serving the tables... Yeah, we think about eating, don't we? Because we're Baptists, automatically. It just happens, right? But, but, but other than that, in, in looking into the text, it, it says that when the expression is you, you're serving the tables, it also could mean the distribution of money. Do you remember earlier in the Acts where they talked about how the believers were bringing their possessions and selling them, and they were sharing all their proceeds, to the, to the body. Somebody had to manage that process. Somebody had to delve out the money to make sure that everybody was getting what they needed. And so th- it could be more than just food. It could be basically taking care of the needs of the people. But they got the church involved. They got the church involved in addressing the problem. But at the same time, notice what the apostles did communicate also to the church. And I think this is important for the church today the apostles also indicated to them that they were going to protect their roles as apostles. They took very seriously the fact that Christ had appointed them to step into the role as spiritual shepherds of the congregation. And they were so protective of that, they said, we cannot, we will not allow ourselves to be distracted by this ministry, even as important as it is, as good as it is, that's not what God has called and gifted and empowered us to do we are to be able to spend time in prayer the ministry of prayer and spend time in the ministry of the word because that's the primary responsibility of the apostles and you know that's a challenge to me and to our pastoral team I'm the world's worst I'm glad Jan's not in here because I get a resounding amen but I'm the world's worst i'll see something that needs to happen and i'll say you know i i I can do that yeah i I could run that van over there and get it inspected and 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 yeah i could meet that serviceman up here to look at the air conditioner oh yeah yeah i could go over there and check and see if that uh uh, that room needs to uh, organizing. and oh and you know what happens i'm this is confession time folks okay you know what happens before you know it it's friday And I've been so blasted busy doing work that other members of the church could easily do and do better. And I've neglected my time, that God-given time of being before God in prayer, praying for the church, and pouring over the Word of God. So I'm saying that to Pastor Tim and Pastor Chad and others who have the responsibility of leading and shepherding roles. This is important that we never allow the most important thing that God has called us to do to be usurped by good things, but not as important. So it's important that you church members, my brothers and sisters, you have to help us out there, okay? There'll be times where you'll see me heading off with the van. Saying, where are you going, preacher? I'm going to go get an inspector. I'm going to fill it up again. I can do that. Good gracious. That's not what we called you to do. Look, you have to remind us from time to time. And so there's plenty to do in the body of Christ that we don't have to find out. So they were saying, these are the things we're going to protect. So now as we move further, beginning in, in verse 5, you'll see the Spirit's divine Provision. You see, just as God is working here, here's a potential problem that he's turning into a growth moment. How does that happen? Because, you see, God is organizing the church. He's giving organization to the church. And you know what? God still organizes his church based on needs. As needs arise, guess what? God's got people that he can equip, He's got people that have talents to take care of those needs. And so this is what it, and the Spirit is working to do this. And so we see out of this dilemma comes the working of the Spirit. In the, first of all, in the, in the people's selection of leaders. You'll notice that as we look here in verse 5, it says, And and, say, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. That about knocked me over. <laughs> when, when is a church ever unanimous? Now, I, I grant you, I'm holding my breath, But God has been awful gracious through all that we've gone through. God has maintained and cultivated a beautiful spirit of cooperation here at Cornerstone, and I give you all credit. I give God the praise, but I give God—I give you credit because you have worked together. Maybe you don't agree with everything. Maybe some details that, that you would do a little different or look at. But you know what? We've had that unanimous kind of uh, 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 spirit. Now, it's not going to always be that way. And you have every right to express your opinion that's not in keeping with what's being put on the floor at the time. But the fact is, when the Spirit is working in the hearts of the people, there is a spirit of unity, there is a spirit of cooperation, because we're thinking and moving as one. That's a beautiful thing to experience. And and that's what happens. That's what happened here. In verse 5, when the apostles gave this proposal, the whole church said, yes, unanimously, let's do that. And then also we see the Spirit working through this election process because it didn't say and hitherto four decades later they finally arranged to agree on who to bring back. There's very little time span between the assignment and lo and behold the church comes back to the apostles and says we got them. (laughs) We got them. And it lists the names of all the seven men that met these spiritual qualifications and their their names are listed there they chose Stephen a man full of faith and and the Holy Spirit now now just take a moment and settle on that phrase for just a minute as we talk about Stephen Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit wow wouldn't that be great for people to say that about you or me And, and then there's Philip and we'll learn a little bit more about him later in the book of Acts. Prochorus and Narcanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte, proselyte from Antioch. Whom they set before the apostles, when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. What the Spirit of God is doing is working in the hearts of the people to identify the kinds of men that would fit the qualifications to serve the people in these areas. Now, I know, historically, we have jumped on Acts chapter 6 and said, there you go, that, there's the deacons. That's the first mention of the deacons. Now, I grant you, and as we look at these men, and we look at their spiritual qualifications, and we look at the fact that they're serving, which is a part of the root of that word diakonos, the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the word deacons not mentioned. Not, not in this chapter or anywhere else throughout the, the text. But, but these are men that are called to come alongside of the apostles and serve the congregation. So in some senses, yeah, we could look at this and say, this is the way that we approach selecting our deacons. And in fact, in the, in the local church, that's what we do. We ask for the congregation to consider in the midst of the congregation, men who are indeed uh, full of the Spirit of God, men who are wise, men who are respected. So that process is there, but don't be so quick to jump and say, oh yeah, those are the first deacons. Because as we look particularly at Stephen and even Philip, you'll see that some of the things that God is doing through them aren't really what deacons typically do. And so we'll see that, but I just want you to understand. But the fact is, the church is responding to the work of the Holy Spirit, and so the people's selection of the leaders. Then you see the uh, the Holy Spirit working in the apostles' ordination of the leaders. And how do we know that? Because when the people brought these seven men back to the deacons, uh, back to the deacons, back to the apostles, it says that they prayed over them and they laid hands on them. Them laying their hands on these seven men was not imparting to them some kind of a mystical, magical power. It wasn't even saying, We're making you equal with us as apostles. It was simply saying, We recognize that God is doing a work. He's doing a work and He has raised you up. He has given you favor in the eyes of your peers, your church members. And we are delegating to you now authority as the shepherds of this congregation. To serve the people as we have described, in any other way that God will lead you. So you see the Spirit of God working in this great way. Now, what effect does all this have? The church is getting organized. You got the apostles overseeing the spiritual, shepherding needs of the congregation. But now you got another group, the seven, who are serving at a more practical way. And so you see that organization beginning to take place as God is working in the life of the church. And God is doing that today as well. You know, as we move further here in chapter 6, I think it's interesting in verse 7, what effect did all of this have? It says in, in, in verse 7, And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. There goes your 20, 25,000. Now they're being multiplied. Notice it didn't just say add it to. Folks, multiplication is not 2 plus 2 is 4. But you know, 3 times 3 is 9 you know, when you multiply, you're, you're spreading even further. God is growing the church because the church is obediently following the leadership of the Word of God and, and the Spirit of God as directed by His anointed, the apostles. So there's, there's great growth. The disciples are multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many, look at the last part of verse 7. This is significant. And a great many of the priests... We obedient to the faith. Wow. I mean, I thought the priests was starting to be suspicious of the church. The high priests were because of the church, and this movement and Jesus Christ as the Messiah, was beginning to threaten their power, to threaten their comfort zone. But there were priests who were doing menial work. See, it took a lot of priests to carry out the work and the service in the temple. And you see, many, just the, the high priests were the ones that were wealthy. They, they gleaned off of the top of the offerings and they had the best of the houses and the best of the clothes and they ate the best of the food. Oh, they were the upper echelon of the priesthood. But there were the, the guys that were down in the dungeon who did the dirty work. And they were getting paid what would be equivalent to minimum wage. And they were being looked down upon and treated, you know, uh, you know, as second class citizens by the upper echelon. And you know, they began to watch these Christians and they began to see, hey, these Christians, there is no such thing as that hierarchy and, and discrimination and, and 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 one over another. They love each other. They care for each other. They they've got something that's. I, I'm just speculating, but but something convinced these priests to say what they have we don't have we're going over there I believe this is the beginning of trouble and we'll see it as we move further verse 8 remember I told you about Stephen one of the seven men and it says in verse 8 and Stephen full of faith and power did great wonders and signs among the people so you see he's not the typical deacon alright no offense fellow deacons or brother deacons okay but just, just as I don't do signs and wonders, I'm not an apostle, okay? I'm a pastor. And and, and so God didn't call deacons in the church today to do signs. But signs and wonders, that, that's, they're like the apostles. Stephen is doing what Peter was doing, what James is doing, John is doing. Peter has special anointed power. I mean, uh, Stephen has special anointed power given to him to do signs. He's working miracles out there. Why? To authenticate the work of the church, just like with the apostles. So he's doing wonders and signs among the people. But look at verse 9. Then there arose some from what is, the, what is called the synagogue of the freedom. These are Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia. And, and basically, the, the synagogue, there were all kinds of synagogues, which would be like a, a church building. There's the temple. But coexisting with the temple in different communities were these synagogues, Jewish places of worship. These were places where Jews would go and they'd have Bible teaching and they'd have worship, you know, at a very local level. And because of the diversity, remember, the Hellenist Jews and the Hebraic Jews, you, you know, they, and, and these people coming from different parts of the world, settling in Jerusalem, speaking different languages, having different cultural backgrounds. So just like churches do, they, they would have a synagogue over here of the, the people who were descendants of slaves that had been taken to Rome. And now they're returning and they call themselves the synagogue of the freedmen. Well, in verse 9, we see here that immediately they start di- disputing with Stephen. And a better translation of that verb is debated. Well, why is that? Because, you see, Stephen is a... All seven men in this work noting, all seven men that were selected by the church to wait on the people were Hellenist. They were Greek of, of Greek background. I thought that was interesting because, you see, the church could have said, Now, we'll give you four four Greek and we're going to have three Hebrews just to balance things out or four and three no they realized that the need was really with the Hellenists so they appointed all seven men who were from Greek backgrounds so that means that Stephen is of that Greek background and, and so he goes into a synagogue that is also of the Hellenist background because he, he can relate and what does he do? He goes in there, just like Paul would later do, go to different synagogues to teach and to teach the gospel to the Jews. And he finds these Hellenist Jews and he begins to preach and teach the gospel. In his old expression, that's when the fat hit the fire. Because here comes this man who is full of the Spirit of God and the grace of God and he has a exceptional wisdom and he's debating he didn't go in there to argue. He just said, let's, you get all your truths up, and I got all of mine. And see, this is something that would appeal to Pastor Tim, maybe Pastor Chad. You know, my mind just doesn't think that fast, so I'm not a debater. But, but uh, Stephen, full of the Spirit, he was saying, let's, let's, let's talk it up, boys. You, you put all your truth on the, on the, on the table, and I'm going to debate it. And let, I want you to see what's happening here. So it says then um, that he was, they were disputing with Stephen. And look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They were no contest. They couldn't begin to hold the ground with, with Stephen. His wisdom was so far ahead of them. The power with which he debated was so convincing and so authoritative, they realized, man, we're in a league. He, he's in a league way above us. Be like me doing a pickup game with University of Kentucky, one of those teams that's going to the finals in the NCAA. But, but, I mean, that would look ridiculous. And, the, and they began to feel how inadequate they were. So what do people do when they begin to feel inadequate? I've got to find some way to win. And so they began, began to devise tactics in a very de- deceiving way, devious way that they can get at Stephen. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him say or speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that may not be a big deal to you and me, but if you are a practicing Jew, anybody, anybody that would dare to blaspheme or undermine Moses, the law, or God, that was a death penalty. That was a serious serious charge but you'll notice that they induced men that's nothing more than a bribe okay they were bribing or threatening men to come up with these false charges against Stephen so they could set him up okay and so once in, 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 this, in verse 12 and they stirred up the people The elders and the scribes and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Why don't you stop there just a second? Because something very important just transpired. Up until now, the church has had the favor of the people. Do you remember? Out there in the temple complex, Peter and James and the rest of the apostles, they're preaching, they're working signs and wonders, and the people love them. The only resistance they've encountered has been from the Jewish leadership the Sanhedrin. But now, the people are being turned against them. That's very important. Because when the populace begins to turn against the movement, watch out. Have you begun to see some parallels here between what is happening to Stephen and what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you beginning to see how the people who were... Greeting Jesus and celebrating his triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week. You know, it's, he's the Messiah. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed be the Son of God or Son of David. And and, and and then all of a sudden, by the end of the week, what happened? They had been turned diametrically opposed the same ones who were cheering for Jesus were standing at Pilate's court saying crucify him crucify him because Satan knows how to engineer lies he knows how to turn people and that's what's happening they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes and they came upon him seized him and brought him to the council they also set up false witnesses who said this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place which is the temple and the law two very sensitive areas to the dedicated Jews for we listen now Listen, this is going to be very similar to what you've heard before. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Are those not the same lies that were propagated against Jesus when he was on trial? Did did false witnesses not come up and say, we've heard him say, he's going to tear this temple down. When in fact, when you go back in the Gospel of John and you examine the text, Jesus was speaking of his, the temple of his body. You tear down my body, he says. No big deal. I'm raising it back up in three days. Do you see the consistency of Satan's patterns? There is no other more proficient and professional enemy of the church than the devil himself why because he has had centuries of practice he knows what works on people he knows how to turn people's hearts from God he knows how to turn people's hearts on one another he knows how to divide and he knows how to destroy and he was out to do that in the church and he was singling out Stephen why Stephen He's just minding his business, doing this. I'll tell you why. Because in the eyes of the adversary, Satan, and translated to the Jewish leaders, this was a dangerous, dangerous man. He was full of power, but it wasn't human power. It was the power of the Spirit of God. He was full of wisdom, but it wasn't the wisdom of man. It was the wisdom divinely given to him by God. And all they felt, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to destroy him. And you see Satan's going back and he's pulling out the same game plan that he had with Jesus. And so here we go again. Stephen is doomed in in his mind. I want to direct your attention to verse 15. We'll be closing. I think it's so great how God works. You know, Stephen, Stephen is really a remarkable man of God. You never see this man, and, and he's going to be going into his, he's going to have a chance to preach to the Jewish leaders, and we'll look at that next time. But he knows the bloodthirsty gang that the Sanhedrin is, he knows the deceitful, lying bunch that they are, he knows how dangerous they are, he knows they are a deadly group. To contend with. And never. Not once. Never in the biblical record. Do you see Stephen backing down. You don't see him backing up. Because he's been called by God. To represent God. And there's only one way. For a man like Stephen. And it's forward. And I want you to see something. God honored Stephen. Stephen remember when Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness and and he asked God, show me your glory. Oh, God, Jehovah, I I just would love to see your glory. God says, you know, I love you, Moses. I'm paraphrasing. But but basically, you know, God said, I I love you, Mo. (laughs) But you know, if I did that, it'd kill you. You'd be dead as a rock. (laughs) But I know your heart. And I told you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass by, and don't you look out early, you'll be fried toast. Remember Lot's wife? (laughs) (laughs) But when I pass by, I'll remove my hand and I'll let you look at the backside. That's all you can tolerate, tolerate, Moses. And when he did, Moses went down from the mountain and he glowed. He was fluorescent. He glowed so much so that the people couldn't stand it because of their sinfulness and their, the difference between them and Moses. They could not stand the fact that the glory of God was radiating from his face. So he had to cover his face until the glory wore off. Won't you see something? Because you see, just as the crowd is gathered around and they're watching this convergence of, of enemies upon Stephen and how he's being set up, and, and, and things don't look so good. I want, you to, I want you to understand there's another audience too. There's a celestial audience. There's God the Father and God the Son watching Stephen. And they see, they see the power of the Spirit in his life. Look, look at verse 15. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as a face of Of an angel. I believe that the divine countenance of Holy God, just for that moment, as if to say to the crowd that was trying to set him up to kill him, was saying, This man is mine. He's one of mine. They looked at Stephen's face and they didn't see worry, they didn't see stress, they didn't see anxiety, they didn't see weakness. They didn't see sin, purity. God was putting his stamp of approval upon this servant. I ask you, as you go out into your world, and as you seek to be faithful, wherever wherever God takes you as a Christian, wherever he takes you, you will encounter. If you're faithful, now if you're an undercover Christian, you probably won't have a lot of resistance. If you're one of those Christians that you want to talk like, act like, dress like, behave like the rest of the world, chances are you won't run up against a lot of resistance because Satan will just let you go on because you're not doing any damage to him. But oh, if you you choose to stand out as a true child of God and stand on the principles of this Word of God and people begin to sense that you are serious about your walk with Christ, watch out. You could be another Stephen. And the trials could get hot. And the resistance can become tough. But stand. Stand in Christ. Don't back up. Look the enemy in the face. And just know that you are on the winning side. Amen? I've read the back of the book and I know we win. just stand. And let the Spirit of God speak through you and love through you and witness through you. Who knows? Who knows that the contrast between you and the rest of the wicked world, people may look at your face or they just may look at the way you conduct yourself and and your countenance and your love and they may say, Wow, I don't like them, but there's really something different about them. They're not like us. That's the greatest compliment that your spiritual adversaries could pay to you and me.